Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Back with us this week is Arthur Jamfa to talk about Tyrion again. Who doesn't love to talk about Tyrion? Steve and I cover The Watchers on the Wall. This is a action-packed episode, and Steve and I both absolutely loved it. And for my Bird's Eye View section, I include an excerpt of my conversation with Jan Doolittle Wilson. We talk a lot about Penny. If you're not familiar with Penny then you should reread the latest novel because Penny is Tyrion's traveling companion. They're both in a traveling show together. They're both little people, and she happens to be one of Jan's favorite characters. Again, my apologies about the audio in my conversation with Steve. It is shoddy. It's not great. You deserve better. I'm bad. You're good. I'm ugly. You're handsome. Without further ado, here is Arthur Jampa. <laughs> all right hey um arthur so when i was in england my name got changed from anthony to anthony oh of course it did yeah so do you have the same problem so actually this is this, that's quite funny because i so i arrived in london and was six right okay and uh, I went to like a, a bilingual school, so half of it was in French and half of it was in was in English. Uh-huh. And some people, and I specifically remember my uh, my fencing coaches insisted on calling me Artur, my English fencing coaches, which would annoy me so much mm-hmm. because I wanted <laughs> to become British because you put me in the country when I was six, so that's inevitably what happened. And then people were calling me by a French name, and it made me very very unhappy. Uh, because it's an English name, and you know you could like well, it's like, analyze it's like me just an English name. It's the English. Name. I mean, that's, that's what that's what I'm saying. It is, is. Can you get more British than Arthur? Like, come on, you can't be kidding me. <laughs> Calling me Arthur. All right, so that's interesting. So most people don't call you Arthur; they call you Arthur. Yeah, I mean, I, I insist on never being called Arthur. I correct right. people immediately. Okay. If they do All right, it. so yeah. you make you make sure people. Do that. All right. So, I mean, I certainly the Brits can say TH. They can do it. Yeah. yeah well, then yeah. why mean, was I, I, I Anthony the whole time? I guess I just didn't care too much to correct anyone. Uh, yeah. I also, I also think Anthony's a bit posher. So maybe uh, you had posh friends. I mean, I don't want to make accusations about perhaps you surround yourself with posh people um, in academic circles that are more comfortable with Anthony than with Anthony. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't people who were fancy people, they were trying to act like fancy people. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Hey, Arthur, I love this. I was reading this chapter and I was like, oh, tell me about it. This is a, 
this is just a brilliant chapter. I I was thinking, like, I, and I do this every now and again. I'll be like, oh, this is my favorite chapter. Mm-hmm. But the reason I like it so much is that you get to see Tyrion's mind at its sharpest. He's in this dire situation. Like, he's desperate. And he knows that the only way to get out is to outthink everyone else in this castle. And he absolutely does it. Tyrion fans, this is just what a chapter. And, and and it's also the first few Tyrion chapters are so frustrating and the first like introduction to Tyrion because when you've read the rest of like the rest of it and then you come back to this, you're like, but wait, this isn't the Tyrion that I know. This is some kind of what what's doing rolling around on the floor? What, who is this? Mm. And then mm-hmm. slowly he changes. And this is where I'm like, okay. This is Tyrion admitting to a room full of people that he's slept with hundreds of prostitutes while completely outsmarting them. This is this is it. Like we've arrived. This is the Tyrion that I love, and so that's that's why for me, I'm like, I love this chapter. Yeah. Let me do a uh, synopsis of the chapter, and then yeah. we can talk about it. Tyrion has spent several nights in the Eerie's dungeon, which is a stone room with only three walls and a floor that slopes toward nothing but sky. He is cold, hungry, and angry at his mistreatment. The goaler is a simpleton named Mord who taunts him, throws his food into the wind, and kicks Tyrion with steel-pointed boots. Tyrion reflects on his first interrogation by Lady Lysa and her six-year-old son. Lysa has accused him of killing her husband. Tyrion mocked the accusations with sarcasm and ended up in a sky cell for it. Driven by desperation, Tyrion hatches a plan to get himself free. He bribes Mord to send a message to Lysa. When brought to court, he demands a trial. When granted, he demands a trial by combat. After Servardus Egan is selected to be Lysa's champion, Tyrion waits to see if Braun will rise to the challenge. His gamble pays off as Braun agrees to be Tyrion's champion. So, Arthur Jamfa, you want to talk about a character... A plot point, a theme, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? I, I wonder if you can predict what I'm going to choose. I think that you are going to. I think that you're going to choose a character. Oof. And I think it's Tyrion. I actually think I really hesitated between that and I want to try the ladder of chaos because I did last time. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like I'm missing out. Um, <laughs> So I'm going to take the ladder of chaos, but the first oh, of all... Oh, you were so... De- you, you, Sir, you poo-pooed the ladder of chaos last time you were I did, I did, but, you know, I, I clearly am just a trend follower. <laughs> I'm just a hype man. <laughs> and the trend is now back to the ladder of chaos, so I just uh, follow trends okay. here. Okay, all right. All right, you go first. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I was going to say that the first rung of my ladder of chaos is absolutely going to be Tyrion, because I want to break down how he does this because i think there's a tendency yeah. of being just like oh Tyrion's just a genius he's just capable of imagining managing the situations and completely sneaks them out but you can see at certain points like the moment where he convinces maud who is the the man who's keeping him prisoner he can yeah, the turnkey the turnkey yeah, that's that's his name he convinces him to listen to him to deliver mm-hmm. a message to, to Lysa. And then he starts thinking like, oh, what should I say? And for me, that's a really revealing moment about Tyrion, that he isn't a man that really plans things out and thinks things through. 
and creates these amazing plans, but he's just so incredibly quick-witted that he outsmarts everyone by just making on-the-spot decisions. Yeah, sometimes he does that. Sometimes he'll have sort of a general idea in mind. Like, for instance, I think he's thinking, I need to befriend Braun early on. Mm -hmm. I think he's been trying to make friends with Braun, like, for weeks. Yeah. Or, I don't know, a week or however long it takes to get to the Eerie. Yeah, yeah. I need to get into a situation where I can demand trial by combat, and I think I'm going to gamble that Braun steps forward. So I think he's been planning that for a while, but he doesn't know exactly how he's going to get there. And so you're absolutely right that there are moments where he's thinking, okay, I need to try something else. Like right now, I need to try it right now and see what happens. Yeah. So yeah, no, in that way, he's impulsive. And even the time where he, just before the end, when the plan is about to go well by Bronn saying, you know, I'll take it on. He suddenly thinks, oh, is this a colossal mistake? So even after everything he's done, he's still second guessing himself and not certain. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. and also what's also so incredible about this chapter is the fact that unlike the show, and we can talk about show differences later, but unlike the show, we're not seeing this. We're, most of, of this chapter is his recollections. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I feel like it's also, we're very much in his mind during the, during this chapter. So what we're doing is very much a psychoanalysis of how his mind works, how he does these, these things. And we're introduced yeah. and we're introduced to him regretting almost all of his decisions to him, not really knowing what he's doing, but somehow finding his way through because on the moment he says these things are just the right thing to say most of the time. Well, one thing that you said that I, I absolutely want to follow here is you said you want to talk about how he sort of makes all this happen, mm-hmm. right? So here's what I wrote down. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Tyrion uses Mord's greed to get to court, right? So he right. yeah he uses sort of that that's sort of the the low cunning that he accuses Cersei of earlier in the chapter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but then when he's at court, he has to use a different tact. He has to use the pride of the veil to his benefit. Yeah. And he has to make these knights of the veil and the you know Lady Lysa feel a sense of shame that the veil is a place where there's no justice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. I'm going to read this one little part here. Okay, so basically, he's done his little thing where he's made everyone laugh, but then he's refused to confess to the murder. And he says, is this how justice is done in the Vale? Tyrion roared so loudly that Servardus froze for an instant. Does honor stop at the bloody gate? You accuse me of crimes. I deny them. So you throw me into an open cell to freeze and starve. He lifted his head to give them all a good look at the bruises Mord had left on his face. Where is the king's justice? Is the Eerie not part of the Seven Kingdoms? I stand accused, you say. Very well. I demand a trial. Let me speak. Let me speak my truth or falsehood. Be judged openly in the sight of gods and men. So Tyrion uses their sense of shame against them, Mm. right? Because they value their honor. They want to be known as a place of justice. Yeah. So then he uses so he uses greed to get out, he uses shame to get a trial, and then he uses religion to get a trial by combat. 
because he's basically saying, "I let the gods let the gods judge me. I want a trial by combat." Mm, I see. And they yeah. have they have to go along. So he uses these. He uses low cunning, and then he uses these social norms that he knows will. In the end, he has to gamble, right? Yeah, but you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of that uh, passage later when Varys talks about power. And so he says a, a man walks up and we have one priest and we have a king and we have a very rich mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. And all three of them ask this man to kill the two others. And the mm-hmm. priest says in the name of the seven gods, you have to kill them right. and you will uh, not go to the seven hells. And the king says, I will make you a lord, I will make you a knight. And the 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 very rich man says, I will give you all the gold that you will need. And then right. Varys' conclusion is, uh, power is wherever people, uh, wherever men believe it relies. And yes. Tyrion makes great use of that, right? He uses those three weapons of different mm-hmm. types of power. Even though he's right. in a powerless situation, he uses outside power that he can leverage because of his position as a, as a, as a lord and an important person in the realm. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I hadn't thought of it. But now that you recall that, I think I remember Martin saying that that quote from Varys is probably the most, is sort of the heart of his story. Like it's like sort of the, the key theme yeah, and clearly we see in this chapter that it's true. They're all living by these mythologies, and Tyrion knows it and manipulates them. But, but can we talk about the audience for a second? Because I, there is not there is no group of people in this whole book I hate as much as the court of the Eerie, because they are the reason for this, and they are so incredibly annoying. And they are so easily manipulated in this way. They laugh at <laughs> every joke for no reason and have absolutely no loyalty in their reactions. The, they're, they're so over the top. Like at one point, Tyrion is like, oh, I want to try by combat. And they all just start dying laughing. Like that passage is absolutely ridiculous. The way that right. he just describes them just over the top laughing. And it, it just, it, I just, they just seem a whole court of just idiotic people who have no sense of politics and what's going on around them, except some kind of, I'll like- tell you how I read that. Maybe you read it differently. Um, I read that as they've never seen a man eschew his own sense of honor before by demanding a champion. They've seen women. They might've seen women do that, but I think that it would be generally thought that if you're a man and you demand trial by combat, you're probably going to do it yourself or otherwise, people are going to think you're a coward. And I think that when Tyrion, who's a man, demands a champion, it may be the first time that they've ever seen a man do that before. And that's why they laugh. But what I don't understand is like Tyrion will, will say something funny, making fun yeah, okay. of their lords and of Lysa. <laughs> right, right. And then they'll all like laugh and like stifle the laughter really badly. And then Robin makes a pretty bad joke because he's six. And then they all start laughing. And then Lysa, with a terrible wit, makes a joke and they start laughing. And Tyrion says something mildly shocking and they all like, oh, gasp. It's just, it's just so <laughs> annoying. What is wrong with them? <laughs> yeah, it, it really does give you the sense that they, 
at court, everyone's got their courtly face on. Mm-hmm. And so there, so nothing is authentic. And so Tyrion, one of Tyrion's superpower is that he can walk into a room where everyone's pretending to be something that they're not. Mm-hmm. And just by pointing the finger at something that's authentic and naming it, sometimes in a crude way or whatever, but naming it is so incongruous with the social setting yeah. that you can't help but laugh because there's an incongruity there. Mm. The other thing I was going to say is that to be a rich man without shame in this world is like a superpower. If you're rich, you you know, you the, the money matters a little bit less to you, but your real currency in the realm is how highly people think of you. But if you're someone like um if you're like someone like Walter Frey, you're a rich man, so you've got the money, but then you don't have a sense of shame about it, you can get away with a lot of stuff. You know, it's like everyone else is fighting with one hand tied behind their back. But if you have no shame, you can kind of do a lot of things that other people wouldn't even try to do. Yeah, and I think yeah, you need money, you also need status, obviously, I think. But I absolutely agree with you and it's almost um represented by later um the the next catelyn uh chapter when we see bronn fighting uh the knight that fights for that from night fight for the veil and yeah, yeah yeah he he basically can't fight because he's in his night gear and he has to uh, fight in this honorable way and, yeah you know yeah he's Bron fighting with one hand tied behind him. his back he's, basically yeah, quite quite literally representation of how um how Tyrion beat them yeah because braun has no sense of shame right mm-hmm. so he's gonna fight dirty he's gonna fight however he wants so Tyrion has lived this life where by he's sort of the source of ridicule and he's sort of learned the lesson that you can survive ridicule and so he doesn't mind ridiculing other people. He doesn't mm. mind ridiculing himself. He's sort of desensitized to the ridicule part of it. Whereas someone like Lady Lysa, how many people would actually dare to insult Lady Lysa? That's true. So for her, Tyrion's sarcasm is going to hurt really badly because she just never has had to deal with that kind of thing before. I, I also think... Um... And maybe this is a bit meta, but I also think Mar- uh, George Martin gives um, gives quite an advantage to Tyrion in this, but with this setting, because mm. he is intentionally creating quite a creepy atmosphere with the veil, and he does this mm. thing where he kind of exaggerates everyone's personality. Yeah, um, right. that's I I got that sense too. Yeah. yeah, so like he he's creating these these big walls that are completely white, and it's it's not usually what would what would be creepy, right? But by just exaggerating everything, the little white, the little six year old kid is extra six year old. Lysa is extra Lysa. The knights are extra knights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a bit like Get Out, right? He's trying to he's trying to creep us out by uh <laughs> by creating this kind of like whole performance, and that. <laughs> makes it super easy for Tyrion, the character, to walk along because they're predictable. And if people are predictable, Tyrion can out- outsmart them. Like the first thing he says about um, the Mords at the start of the chapter is that he is as as dumb as he is predictable. And yeah, I feel like right, that's, right. that's the thing about the whole veil. They are creepy because they're predictably exaggerated. So 
Tyrion can play them like a fiddle. And knowing their predictability, he knows how to manipulate that situation if he acts unpredictably. Yeah. Um, but in addition to that, he's also willing to gamble. And I don't know if this bespeaks his intelligence or if the, he's just getting lucky. I, okay, just before we get off Tyrion and we start talking about other things. Um, yeah. I want to talk about, because we, we, we talked about it quickly, but I want to talk about Tyrion and his relationship with death. Because oh, I can't figure out if he cheats death because he's really intelligent or if he cheats death because he's got amazing plot armor. And that, I mean, that's <laughs> really down to how realistic Martin is, right, just, is making his, his yeah. cheating death moment, right? Just so we get everyone on the same page. Can you describe what plot armor is? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a nerdy term. That um, means when a character is too important to the storyline to be killed at that moment in time. Therefore, mm-hmm. in a moment where really they should die, somehow they don't die. I mean, you see this happening mm-hmm. all the time. Like an arrow is about to kill someone and hits hits the wall just next to them. And that's a, you know, tip or, you know, someone shoots them and then they have a coin in their, yeah. po- in, in, in their pocket yeah, it doesn't and it doesn't kill them. <laughs> doesn't serve the plot exactly. for this character to die at the moment. And of course, you know, we've got this, Tyrion is one of the most important characters in the entire series. Mm-hmm. Certainly he's not going to die, uh, die right here, right? So um, now plot armor is fun to point out in retrospect right yes uh anyway all right so now that we have our terms defined uh continue and so whether it's part or whether it is Tyrion's wit comes down to how convincing martin is right i'm not right. <laughs> convinced that i am convinced yeah. that Tyrion can escape de- death this many times and just to stay on this chapter mm-hmm. is this convincing is this possible um that he gets out of this situation what do you think i think that i mean i think it's i mean i love the chapter so much that i think that the answer has to be that it's convincing because if i was thinking oh bullshit (laughs) (laughs) if it ever occurred to me like (laughs) i only thought bullshit once at one point during the chapter but i'll bring that up later okay but if that was on the front of my mind i would not have enjoyed the chapter Mm. Um, and it could just be that I'm willing, I'm enjoying it so much that I'm willing to overlook some of these little chinks in Martin's armor. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that part of what makes it convincing is that you see that it's a calculated gamble and what he's gambling on is all of these social norms, because if the, if the norms fall apart, the, the society collapses. I mean, that's how they view these things. Right. Of course. Um, you know, no one's no one's going to sort of dishonor the gods. No mm. one's going to cop to the fact that the veil is a place of injustice, uh, because doing so makes the entire mythology falls up, fall apart, and all the people with power who rely on the mythology, their power is sort of undermined. Mm. So Tyrion is absolutely gambling, but the gamble pays off because he believes that the mythology is important to these people. And mm-hmm. he's absolutely right that it is. Now, there's a couple times where he's, you know, it's kind of, the gamble is like, you gotta, you, you're gambling quite a bit on Mord here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
you you got your life in Mord's hands, and Mord is is a wild card, you know. <laughs> uh, so I mean, there's there's situations like that, or the, you know that 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 Braun will step forward in the end. That's the biggest gamble of all, right? Yes, uh, he could. So not he's have known he's that. been laying the foundation for that, and he's hoping that it'll pay off. Like, mm-hmm. but to see it come to fruition is gratifying enough that I wasn't thinking. Yeah, would would a free rider like Braun really risk his life? Hmm, mm. I don't know. I I wasn't thinking that at all. So what what about yeah. you? What were you thinking? Right. So I think I also think it is convincing, but I think it's convincing because. Tyrion's mouth kill, almost kills him as many times mm. as it saves him. <laughs> and that's why I'm absolutely convinced is that it gets him into the situation. It also gets him out and he gets a setback and then he comes back mm. and he gets a setback. And that for, to me is realistic, right? If, if, mm. if his mouth is capable of doing that much, it is also capable of causing a lot of bad things for him. But he mm, doesn't have complete control over it. No one, no one could possibly ever and so I am convinced because I think, yeah, it is this kind of roller coaster of emotions he's going through because like somehow his wit is just carrying him towards directions that he does control. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that's why I think Martin is making a convincing case to, as to why this is believable. That's interesting. Now, when you first said Tyrion's relationship to death, I thought you were going to go a different direction. Oh, okay. Tell me. I think that Tyrion is... Um, there are a couple hints here that Tyrion struggles at times with suicidal ideation. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean that the, the sky cells are totally designed to make someone suffer long enough to, you know, just be cold long enough to be mm. hungry long enough mm. to become desperate enough mm. to take their own life. Mm. And here we have Tyrion who just a, a, a cha- you know, a few chapters previous you know, he saw his his horse getting butchered, and he thought, "Well, maybe the horse has the better outcome." Yes, because, yeah. because I'm miserable. Um, and then, of course, we know much later in Dance that uh, you know that he actually is actively thinking about taking his own life. Yes, yeah. Um, and I think perhaps that is a major factor that probably causes a lot of things here, because. Like the way he says, he's just there to rot. But he says, I don't think I can rot for much longer. And there's two ways of interpreting that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But perhaps it's because of his physical, uh, like physical disabilities and that yeah. he doesn't think he can hold because he's getting weak. Um, but perhaps it's because mentally he just cannot hold uh, as long as other people would. And so they assume, okay, you know, we know people can last two, three weeks into the sky cell. Well, he knows, oh, I can't, you know, in a few days I'm going to jump off. Um, yeah. So perhaps this is all caused by his mental inability to, to, to kind of push off those suicidal thoughts. Hmm. And maybe it's, it's suggestive of this is the kind of guy who would gamble his life by demanding a trial by combat. Also true. I don't think he ideates very often at this point. I mean, eventually he will eventually he'll actually put poisonous mushrooms in his pocket Mm. 
and think about eating him mm-hmm. um, and thinking that this is actually a good thing if he does. Um, but he has to be brought really low for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Right? He has to kill his own father to make that happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at this point, I think we just see little seeds that it, it's in the back of his mind. He wants to live, but there's this little voice back there that he, you know, he can usually keep silent. And I think that I think we've seen a couple hints of that so far. And I think also the last Tyrion chapter, you talked about to what extent we need to talk about the author's intent. <laughs> yeah. And when That's we right. talk, and when we're talking about Tyrion. Um, kind of like suicidal thoughts creeping in in a way that is so seamless um what does that tell us about martin is is he just so incredibly good at simulating that that he's capable of of doing that seamlessly or is it some reflection of something he'd gone through in his past i guess i guess we don't know but it is are you suggesting that we should remove all of the knives from martin's kitchen <laughs> no no <laughs> That's not what I'm suggesting. I think we should. You think you should? We, all of the knives. We're getting rid of all the knives out of Martin's. Uh, you know, four different the four different houses that he owns. I think I think we should talk to Martin. We should check. I think I think I think someone check. My my message to the world is someone check on on Martin. If no one has. Uh, oh goodness! Well. I think that he gets a lot of credit for these plot twists and people view his these books as brilliantly plot-driven books. But I don't think he gets enough credit for the fact that these books are very, very character-driven. Mm-hmm. And that there are hundreds of characters in these books. And we're seeing you know POVs from, I don't know, 20 different characters throughout the series. That's if anyone that's tried their hand at fiction, that is not easy to do. Um, can we talk about you know, last time we talked about Tyrion, you talked about him becoming a dragon essentially, right? Yeah, well, yeah, twice in this chapter, they mentioned him having wings. The first time, ah, he... I love it, I missed it, and I love it. <laughs> <I'm> so... <laughs> the first time, he is like looking over the edge and he says, yeah. I'm like a, a bee in a stone honeycomb and someone clipped off his wings. And the second time is the lice that mocks him and asks him if he do dwarf have wings. Then if not, shut up because I'm going to throw you off. And I think oh. that we're getting more hints. And I think every single person that comes to the podcast and Tyrion is mentioned, should look out for Tyrion is going to become a dragon theory. I this is why I love doing this podcast. This I would have I, I'm clearly I'm clearly convinced my by my own theory, right? <laughs> that metaphorically or some other in some other way he's going to become a dragon. Or maybe he's just a Targaryen or something like that, which which means that he's a dragon. And so I'm actively looking for spot things like that, but I absolutely miss those and I wouldn't have heard them unless you pointed them out. So thank you for doing that. I'm happy to help. You can add it to your blog post. Oh my goodness. I'm I'm so happy about this. <laughs> I wanted to point out something about this chapter that I really enjoyed. I think it's a great there's a great showcase of the way that ancient literacy and ancient orality functioned in this chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah I see what you mean. So there's at least three different ways in which Martin uses the concept of literacy 
to help him world build in this chapter. And the first way is that he sees that there's uh, written on the wall these two lines that said, you know, the gods save me, the blue is calling or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And something that looks especially like blood. Yeah, like someone's maybe written this in blood. And so my immediate thought was that, oh, Martin doesn't know how ancient cultures work because, you know, 99% of this culture is going to be illiterate. You know, the person in this sky cell would have to be like a person of noble birth to be able to write at all and to write so poetically. That's true. Um, And then I thought, so Martin doesn't know what he's doing. Of course... <laughs> of course, I'm foolish. I'm totally <laughs> foolish. And the reason why I thought that was that because Tyrion was reading silently to himself on his way up to the wall, mm-hmm. and that's absolutely not how people read in in the ancient world. Um, to read silently to oneself is a very modern thing. I was sort of like looking down my nose at at Martin, <laughs> and then just a few paragraphs later. Martin pays it off. He says, look, Mord views the written word either is going to view it either as something to be suspicious of or something that holds so much authority. It's almost like magic. Mm. And then I was like eating humble pie because I was like, oh, that's absolutely. <laughs> that's absolutely. He's got his thumb on the pulse of ancient orality. Martin is a genius. And so that's exactly how you'd view writing in the ancient world. And in fact, not only did it almost have like magical authority, sometimes it was magical. Sometimes it was written to be a magical incantation. So if you were illiterate, like Mord is, and someone is willing to write it out, like I'm going, I promise to pay you this amount of money. It's like someone just like wrote the Bible in front of you. So you're going to totally respect that. So then I thought, oh, good God, Martin's a genius and I'm a dummy, right? And then... Ultimately, he pays it off a third time in the chapter when he writes that Marillion is going to sing this story around the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Marillion actually has a lot of power, and by and Tyrion's able to sort of manipulate that power because in an oral culture, the ability to memorize a story by a song is absolutely a propaganda tool. Yeah, That's yeah. how stories are disseminated. They're disseminated by singers who are traveling from town to town. And so Tyrion knows that because Marillion's in the room, he can look at Marillion and say, hey, when this song is sung, make sure you tell them that Lady Lysa did not allow me a champion. And of course, Lysa is totally manipulated by this. She doesn't want to be known as someone who denied him justice. So Tyrion is manipulating what he knows is going to be the oral telling of this. In other words, Marillion's functioning in many ways like like the free press. Um, <laughs> and and so and so Tyrion knows to use that for his political gain. So in those three ways you really see this intersection between literacy and in an oral culture play out in this chapter. And that Arthur made me very happy. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And to the point of whoever wrote that um, in the Sky Cells, 
Tyrion wonders at first who it is, and then decides that he doesn't. It had really to be know. someone. It, yes, it and, had to be a, a wealthy person, someone with a good education, and mm-hmm. that makes Tyrion think even more. Like my status in the kingdom is not going to save me necessarily. I've, I've got to do something out of my desperation here. Yeah, it adds it adds a lot of context to the to the chapter. Actually, yeah, that makes sense. All right, your turn. What else you got? I want to talk about impregnable. Uh, fortresses because okay. I think they're very very cool and before we talk about impregnable fortresses I wanted to hijack your podcast again and ask you questions okay um, let's do it I would so I've got the top three most impregnable fortresses in the world uh, and I want to know if you could guess I'll give you three guesses if you guess one of them you win okay <laughs> <laughs> oh good I don't know I don't know fortresses very well but uh, but yeah try me no, go on. You have to. You just have to say a, a country where you oh, think there's right, going right, to be all right. So I'm fortress. Okay. So okay, I'll, right. I'll give you hints. It has to be a country where there's been a lot of like uh, fortress warfare. Uh huh. Sure, um, they need to be have. They need to have held off someone um, that keeps attacking. Uh-huh. Hint, hint. It's always the British, again, and again. <laughs> um, and no, I think that's that's. Uh, and by the British, I mean the English, actually. Right. So and then that's all. So I don't know. Okay, so I so you, I I can I will get this right if I can name one of three. Yeah, I'm gonna say Wales. Oh, that's close, but not one. All right, Scotland. Yes, that is one. Ding ding ding! Come on, you can get a second one. Um, second, France. Yes, and you've done two out of three, and and the third one is India. So really, everyone that the English attacked a lot. And so tell me about these fortresses. So the first one is, I think, Muru Janjira. I think, okay, someone who's uh, from India is going to send you an email and apologize for me, for my pronunciation. But okay. it's like a massive island fortress. It's off the coast of India, and it's absolutely amazing. Um, it's it's The island is just a fortress. There, there are these massively high walls that I think are 40 feet high. There's 19 rounded bastions, and you the it's, it's just like has one massive entrance that you can get through. And throughout the whole time of the British Raj, the British could not colonize it. So they colonized the whole of India, but this one impregnable fortress, they just let the people inside have their own independent state and like govern themselves. And what's it called again? Uh, Muru Janjira. Um, All right. What about uh, Scotland? Um, Scotland is number three, and this this is the the Edinburgh Castle. So really famous. Anyone from Scotland will know it. It's been besieged more than twenty five times in this history, and it was okay. never taken by force. Huh. So they need to find another way to bribe them, bribe them out, but they never took them by just barging themselves in. And then you know, technology happened. They just bombarded the castle during. The Second World mm. War, but before then, uh, it was untouchable. So, uh, again, when you once you have the English next to you, um, or knocking at your door, you find good mm. ways of defending yourself. Which brings me to the last one, which is the Mont Saint Michel in France. It's got a high tide and a low tide, so it's yeah, really okay. difficult to get to. And in the whole Hundred Years' War, which basically every, every part of France was conquered and unconquered. They were like so close to the British and never got uh, huh. 
never never got pregnated or whatever it's called. You mean the English, right? Yeah, the, the English never got into Mozambique. The English, they really needed dragons. <laughs> although I'm, I mean, I'm this scared. could have all been solved if they just had dragons. Although considering people uh, had to build to ward off the English, I'm scared what would happen if they had dragons. <laughs> <laughs> I want to point out one way. Uh, at one point, I called bullshit. Yeah, you show. mentioned that before. I'm not an astronomy buff, all right? Like I, I study languages. I study history, whatever. I don't know a lot about the stars. But I do know that I've been on the top of mountains before. Mm-hmm. And I've never looked down and seen stars. <laughs> Tyrion is able to look through the moon door, which is, I guess, supposed to be on the floor, right? I guess. It's not on the side of the... It's not on the wall or anything. It's is on the it, floor. Are you, are you getting confused by the show here? I don't think so. I think that there's a description of the moon door mm. that's it says it's in the floor. But anyway, Tyrion looks through the moon door <laughs> and it, it, it's speckled with stars. The, the, he sees the sky below. Yeah, I can buy that. The sky is below. Fine. You cannot see stars out the moon door. That unless this world is so foreign <laughs> that this is such a fantasy narrative that stars are actually the souls of fairies or something. There's no way you're gonna see stars through the floor. No, I, th- I think you've been uh, you've been influenced by the show here because it says a narrow wayward door stood between two slender marble pillars. Now, I don't know where you see pillars along the floor, but oh, good! I think I think you've you I, I think did it again. We've assumed that the the moon door is on the floor, even though no one's paid attention to the to the book. But actually, it seems it's just a normal door. Oh, good God! You, you, I, I did it again. Yeah, you've doubted. I, I was trying to Martin. call Martin out as a yeah. fool. Clearly, mm-hmm. I was the fool. <laughs> I missed the moon door. It's clearly on the wall. It's you know, it's crazy because I read I read this and I did not even like it says it it says between two marble pillars. I remember reading this be like marble pillars. That's weird. And then it says uh-huh. one man removed the heavy bronze bars. The second pulled the door inwards. I mean, it's quite clearly a door. And Inwards is clearly, you would pull the door upwards if it was on the floor. Absolutely. And there's no bronze bar. Would it be a bronze bar if it was a, I mean, that makes no sense. Clearly, this is on the wall. And that, and of course, you're going to see stars through the wall. Of course, wall. you're going to see stars through the wall. So you've, you've, you've identified a, a show in advance of the identified a show difference. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's much more dramatic. Well, I didn't just do that. I, I identified how my perception of the book is so colored by the show mm-hmm. that I've been hoisted by my own petard, Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to get Martin. Oh, I see. And, uh, and I got myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for the, what, the third time this podcast, this is the last time you're coming on. Because <laughs> I, I am not at my best when you're on. But I think you, you, you too often you reveal me to be incorrect. I think we've come to a conclusion that Martin is as good as right as he can be within the nineties. I think I think that is the conclusion <laughs> we have to come to. All right. So notable introductions in this chapter. Mord, we meet Mord in his 
chunky fingers and rotten teeth. We learn about the sky cells and high hall of mm-hmm. the Eerie. Alba Roy, Sir Lynn Corbray, Lord Hunter, Lady Wainwood. I hate them all. Uh, yeah, they're, these are horrible people. Mm. But for me, the most interesting introduction is trial by combat. Because mm. usually what Martin will do is he will hint at a custom or a bit of world building much earlier in the story. That's so true. when it becomes a plot point, you've heard of it before. Even if you didn't sort of uh, you know, understand what it meant, you've seen the seed planted earlier. But when Tyrion demands trial by combat, it's the first time you hear that phrase in the entire book. And I thought it was interesting because it has not been foreshadowed at all. It's clearly key to Tyrion's plan, but Tyrion hasn't let you in on his plan. And when he calls it out, the reaction in the room is sort of like, oh, well, even though he's our prisoner, he's absolutely within his rights to demand trial by combat. And I think it's because the phrase is so self-explanatory that Martin really doesn't have to explain what it is. And so I thought it was interesting that the trial by combat is introduced here, but not foreshadowed previously in the book. That is huge, especially since it becomes massive later, right? Everyone always considers... Everyone always right. considers, wait, if we do trial, will he do a trial by combat? What does that be? Blah, 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 blah. Well, on top of that, it's, um, you know, it's it's a big deal for Tyrion twice, right? Yes. And we think, we don't, we don't know this for sure, but we think it, it will be an issue for Cersei's situation. You know, there, there's speculation that the Hound will sort of come to the, the Faith of the Seven Mm. And that Cersei will demand a champion and choose, you know, Serge Strong, mm. who, is, who is the mountain, right? Yeah. Frankenstein's mountain or whatever. Mm. Yeah. And that you'll see that these two brothers fight it out because Cersei demands trial by combat. Now, in the show, the political intrigue is that the High Sparrow gets Tommen to outlaw trial by combat. But anyway, it's an important part of the plot that gets introduced here. Yeah. No, huge. Um, Book differences here. Clearly, we've noted that the moon door is different, right? Yes. Does the show do the thing where he starts his joke about he once brought a jackass and a honeycomb into a brothel and then he can't finish the joke? Is that 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 scene? I I think it might be. I think it might be right, yeah. I my uncle's boots with goat shit. When confronted with my crime, I blamed a squire. Poor boy was flogged, and I escaped justice. When I was twelve, I milked my eel into a pot of turtle stew. I flogged the one-eyed snake. I skinned my sausage. I made the bald man cry into the turtle stew, which I do believe my sister ate. At least I hope she did. I once brought a jackass and a honeycomb into a brothel. Arthur, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. And now Steve and I talk about Watchers on the Wall. This is that episode where the wall gets attacked from both sides by the free folk. And Steve and I talk a lot about Sam's libido. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, did you ever read Playboy for the articles? (laughs) Uh, You know, that was such a, a classic, you know, comment, right? It's a little slice of life from a different era. Right. and. I, what I appreciate is that, I mean, you know, there were like, I know as a kid, like you'd see something like, I don't know, I'd like an interview or they'd mention like, you know, they interviewed employable and, I, and I'd like, what, really? And so, I mean, they had, you know, you, there were, I think, legit journalists. Of- yeah. Getting interviewed for Playboy, it was like a little notch in your cap because it was sort of like, I'm part of the counterculture and I'm interesting enough to be subversive. Sure. That's where, you know, looking back, it's like, well, then now that kind of playboy for the articles thing is it's 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 humorous but it it would be way more powerful if it was like hustler well i was just gonna say that i was just gonna think like uh sam is in desperate need of like a penthouse testimonial he just needs someone to explain to him how it all works right and uh and if it's in poetic form so be it he needs like a too short he's, he's like a too short album <laughs> exactly freaky tales would have gone a long way with that's what sam's missing and john is not helping him out no john is like i don't kiss and tell i don't care if this is your last night on earth <laughs> no doubt like sam does not have a high aspirations for his last night on earth all he wants is for one guy to say yeah this is what it was like just give me a body story man <laughs> 
Sam does seem like the kind of guy who would read Playboy cover to cover. Right. I mean, not to say he would not also, you know, look at the photographs, but he would read it from cover to cover. Yeah, he'd know their bios. Sure. Yeah, he's that kind of guy. Um, Tormen is into bears. Yeah. I mean, talk about a penthouse testimonial. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> do you think this is a story he just tells to get a laugh, or do you think he's got there's something here because it is Game of Thrones, right? And I do like the ideas like this one again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yigert's heard this story a dozen yeah. times. It's like, oh boy, it's not enough that it's like, oh, look at me, I'm interesting, or I'm. It's, it's like it's it's supposed to be a flex, but it's like, dude, give me give me like three or four bear stories, and I'm and I'm in. <laughs> okay, so there's the bear and the maiden fair, right? Which mm-hmm. is a song really about a bear and a girl, and now we have Tormin boasting that he's once made love to a she bear. Yeah, and so either there's Either there's sort of like a meme going around, or this is a thing. And it becomes mythology. You have to kind of package it as a, as a song or a, a body tale around the campfire. But this is kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you got dead men coming back to life. You got dragons. I find it somewhat like I, I'm willing to believe it. I'm willing to believe Tormund on this. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, we all have those friends who are like, you know, it'll be a perfectly good discussion going on. And then someone will just come out of left field with this like apropos of nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you realize like, it's just one of those like, like, or, or you'll, you'll all be having a good conversation. Someone's clearly left out. And then that person decides, oh, look, there's a piano. I'll play it. And I'm like, all right, I guess we're doing this now. Speaking of sweet vermouth, have I ever told you about the time <laughs> I made love to a bear? Exactly. Right. And you're like, hey, this is a great story, and I do want to have this conversation. But can you can you put this in the parking lot while we? <laughs> All right, this scene or this episode was this was I mean... unlike anything I've seen, and I think it's hard to make these medieval set pieces work. We've talked about how you know, like kind of battle fatigue potentially. Yeah. How did you? I was really impressed by this. I was riveted. The whole thing about the just the wall being so high that the arrows aren't going to go up there, and then the the giant yeah with the with the giant arrow. Wow, that was good. That I mean, I have not seen that on the screen before, so that was really great. Yeah, that one really that yeah I I was I was fully prepared to have this be like all right, no, I'll watch it, but I won't, you know, yeah, but I I was. Start to finish, I was I was I was super locked in. Every every everything seemed to work. All the the Sam moments worked. The John and Egret moment worked, and I didn't. I honestly didn't think I was gonna. I, but that was a good one because that was one of those Game of Thrones. I don't know where this is gonna go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I had thought Sam was gonna kill her. If you know, but I I yeah I thought I thought she was gonna kill John. Right. Man. Well, and I think it was interesting how they played that. Like she's she's hell bent on killing him. And right. then she finally gets close enough to do it and he smiles at her and all of a sudden she doesn't know what to do. Yeah. And it was like it was almost like he smiled despite of himself. He's like, 
I know, I know you're probably going to kill me, but it's just really good to see you again. Yeah, no, that that's that's how I got it, right? And I think that that's what was the disarming because it was so, I think we all had the same reaction as, as Egret. Like, <laughs> well, really? Yeah, wow. right. Right. And then, and then you're also like, yeah, but no, I guess. And so then you, the, that moment, that moment where she pauses, I think we all pause. And I think that's a, that was a super effective scene with that. And that's when I'm like, oh no, maybe she's going to die. And then I was like, oh, Sam could kill her. Sam kills her. Like, what does that do to their relationship? Right. So we see the death of Egret, the death of Gren. Yeah. So he's, he died under the wall, and um, the giant was named Mag the Mighty. Not that, not that you'd know that, because I don't think that they ever mentioned it in the show. But the giant's dead, and uh, Pip Pip is also dead. Yeah, he's, yeah. So he he got he got a arrow right through his throat. Yeah, that was not not pleasant. So all of these people super close to John died, and and that's quite a death count. I mean, and that's yeah. and this season. I mean, just the death count on this season alone is Joffrey, Oberyn, and then the three we just mentioned. All right. And I think at this point, you got to think that maybe Egret's like the most jarring of those. I don't know, maybe Oberyn, but she's been around. I think she's been around for the longest. She's been around for the longest, and the probably the most developed of all of those, right? Because it was so most many. developed, and because we're emotionally connected to her through John, who is like. You know, one of the mainstays. Yeah, yeah. So that death, I mean, that that's uh, you know, you could have it, it could have gone either way. Could it, it could have been Egret, it could have been John. Well, and it's episode nine, so you're like, you know, someone's gonna get it. Yeah. So my, I was actually surprised Sam survived. Right. It really felt like everything was leading towards because Sam was so it reached this level of nonchalance, reached this level of not caring to a certain degree. He was he had. He, he had something to live for with yeah Gilly. Like he's finally got gilly back right so you you would have it'd be a gut punch if if sam was yeah there. that's right okay like, so, so, yeah because you could have easily done a john's about to take an egret arrow and sam jumps in front of it right yeah you could do that yeah i, I felt like this this episode really like in a lot of ways i really haven't seen this kind of thing just everything from like the the people that are on the wall that kind of have these chains or ropes that allow them to kind of shoot straight down. Yeah. I hadn't seen that before. Although I think that there's a Matt Damon movie about a wall. Uh, mm-hmm. who, who knows? Who knows what happens to that movie? No one knows. Nobody knows. Matt Damon would be hard-pressed to tell you. I thought that the giant... Like, I always feel a little bit taken out of it when they're doing forced displacement with the, the giants. Mm-hmm. Like I, it always feels like, eh, you're doing camera tricks with me. But I never got that sense with these giants. Yeah, I agree. No, they were very effective. I'm the same boat in terms of like, I really, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed everything about it, and I kind of, I think I was surprised as I was going through it that I wasn't taken by the battle fatigue at all because hmm. uh, hmm. it was enough new things, and um, I think they did a good job balancing all the characters at the same time. I think that there are. There's something like 28 to 32 main characters of the show, depending on how you're counting. And this episode only featured five of the main characters. So, and that was the fewest number that they had done since the beginning of the show. They were just, it was sort of like a spotlight just on the wall. Yeah. And so you, you could really focus on 
and develop these characters without being distracted by, you know, what's going on at King's Landing or whatever. So you get the sense that Sam's going to knock boots? Uh, that's an interesting one. I think, I mean, I kind of get that sense, but I also feel like that'd be too satisfying. I don't trust the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what he wants most in the world at this point. Yeah, I think he's like, this could be it, man. I've seen a lot. I've done a lot. <laughs> I've, I've killed a White Walker. I've been in a battle siege. Um, one last thing. <laughs> one last thing before I go. Yeah. yeah. So well, we'll see what that happens. All right, let's do some predictions. I'm, I'm assuming you haven't watched season finale yet. I have not watched the season finale. Yeah, it was, it was, that was a challenging one because there was like, because you leave off the last one with, Tyrion being sentenced to death and then you get none of that um mm, yeah yeah and, yeah and that was i think even what made this episode even more impressive what i talked about like not having the battle fatigue but also being like oh i didn't get any resolution for the last yeah. one i was actually okay with it this is this this is kind of a gamble right if people don't mm. if people aren't into this part of the narrative then this week is kind of a lost week so i kind of feel like the Feon narrative is I, i've seen a nice little bow tied for him I feel like I've seen the final scene of that narrative of the season. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've seen the final scene for Sansa, right? Yeah, I think so. It's almost like she is... Those two are on a different trajectory. So Theon is like fully hit the basement of reek, reekness. And Sansa seems to have... She has become something more. It's almost like she's Dark Hasselhoff Sansa yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she's Garth Knight. all right um i don't feel like we've seen the final scene for Arya and the hound uh yeah i I, yeah i get that i feel like those two have been building to something and so something's gotta happen right well because then they just show up at the veil they showed up at the veil and and she just laughed and she was laughing at her aunt's demise well, that's the second time she's gotten to the gate where one of her family members is just beyond the gate. Like, if they just go through the gate, they might actually see someone she's re- related to. And she gets really close to being reunited with a family member, and it just doesn't happen. So something's got to happen for those two. Well, yeah, I mean, there's this, like, she's real close to something, and it'd be kind of, you know, and so that tension's pretty high, and I think that's where she's laughing, right? She's like, it's just, why not? Why not? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, All right, so then Tyrion, we've got to see what happens with Tyrion. Right. Do you have any predictions? Well, so I'm... I'm actually less convinced now that I I was con- I actually thought okay the show's gonna kill him, and I'm not saying that they won't, but I'm not sh- I'm not sure that he dies like this. This this seems this show's really good at, at like building up a character where you think oh everything's going his way or everything's going her way, and that's exactly when when that person's gonna get like a hammer in the skull, right? And th- then you know you think a character you see a character boy it can't get worse for that character, and then it gets worse. And right. Go, oh, they're gonna die now, and then something miraculous happens, and they, you know, they're risen from the dead or something like. I could see something bad happening to Tyrion, and it's not death. 
Yeah, I have a good. Fr- that's a good. I'm glad that you said that. I've got a friend who said this is a good show to make you expect an axe in the forehead, and so you you always you're sitting down to watch the show expecting an axe in the forehead, and you're you're kind of bracing for the axe, and all of a sudden there's like someone with a hacksaw that's like chopping off your ankle. Yeah, that's that's good. That's a good way. So to put it. it could be that. Tyrion doesn't die, but something happens to him that's even worse or something. Right, like some other... I mean, so so Tywin sentences him to death, but that doesn't... I mean, they could come up with a, a different solution or, or you know, or he gets out, but it's now it's a worse situation. I don't know, like that... It doesn't... Because the whole concept, too, is like the... He's like beheading. It seems so like... That's it, you know? For yeah, regicide, right. For regicide? <laughs> All right, so yeah, so Tyrion, I feel like I haven't seen Arya's narrative tied in a bow for the season yet. I have not seen Tyrion's narrative tied in a bow yet. And of course, I kind of feel like something major has to happen with Danny because we've just been getting little glimpse of what, what's going on for her. Well, and again, if if the rules all sort of apply, these seasons tend to end with something with Danny. Yeah, she gets well, the last few, she's gotten more power, right? She either gets a new superpower or a new ally or a new army or something like that. Yeah. Um seemingly though, she's like holding a cord on the top of a pyramid. Yeah. Yeah, and we kind of had the sense too that she was supposed to be kind of laying low for a bit or this is, you know, build this empire, lead get better at that gig and then you know they send dario off Georgia. so there is a sense of like well what do you what would you get now like what yeah. would, what could happen now because um i guess the uh, the other the thing that could potentially happen is tywin is aware so there could be a potential right there could be a potential confrontation right yeah sneak attack like something that we don't know about because he's been doing that on the down low and less protection now that Jorah's gone, right? Right. So I think that we I think we're right at the end of probably the most universally lauded season of Game of Thrones. Four. Yeah, season four. Yeah, that's we we talked about how like it seemed to be when, but it, and it, but it was one that you had the seemingly the most uh, issues with. Well, there was now. I think that there was just that one. There, there. I think I've had a couple issues with every season, but. Season four happened to have that one dog of an episode, at least from my perspective. But I think that, I mean, just from the last few episodes, I think it's easy to forgive some of those missteps because they seem to have done so well with a lot of these other characters. Yeah, yeah. Anything to add to our dismemberment count? Uh, Oberyn's teeth were removed. Yeah, I wouldn't think of that as dismemberment. Although, I have no reason why I, w- I, why I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not... M- I mean, we all lose teeth, I suppose. There's no dismemberment fairy. <laughs> Which, you think... You think, you know, there's, there's there ought to be a market correction on that. You know, the tooth fairy <laughs> ought to be market corrected. You You would think that other kinds of dismemberment would... War- would warrant some sort of a reward. Yes. Yeah, especially if you're talking about a time when, like, you know, parts would be falling off people sometimes. 
For this week's Bird's Eye View, I will include a short excerpt of my longer conversation with Jan Doolittle-Wilson. Jan had some interesting things to say about Penny, who we meet in dance and who doesn't show up in the show. So because this is a Tyrion-heavy episode, I thought I'd include it here. Here is Professor Jan Doolittle-Wilson. You know what we didn't get to, though? What, what? And we don't necessarily have to talk about it, but Penny. Oh, we haven't talked about Penny. We haven't talked about Penny. Penny's a character that completely gets overlooked. She's nowhere in the show version. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of hope that she'll be more developed in the later books, again, if, if they're ever finished. But she's, I don't have to talk about Penny, but she's a really interesting comparison i think well let's um, to yeah Tyrion. you know i don't think that we meet her until dance of dragons right right yeah she comes in very late yeah um she comes in after Tyrion has already fled westeros um and is in a very dark place right and it's just interesting to she's really the only other um character with dwarfism yeah who is named and featured you know certainly not to the extent that Tyrion is but how she represents just a different form of 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 power and strategy right she's certainly not a character without agency yeah but she has none of his advantages yeah she has none of his wealth she is a woman um she has almost every disadvantage one can have in this world and yet her way of negotiating her world, her way of surviving is so different from Tyrion's. Yeah. Tyrion looks on her with disdain in a lot of ways because he has different forms of agency that are available to him. Right. But as a reader, we look at Penny and think, but yet is her form of survival any less valuable than his, given what she has at her disposal? And she's really this great example of somebody who fully plays into her so-called dwarf identity right she fully plays into the stereotypes that people have of her Mm -hmm. as a way of saying i'm going to so exaggerate what you think i am because that way um i'm able to survive in a world that expects nothing less of me and nothing more of me in a lot of ways penny's something of a mirror for Tyrion. Yes. In a way that a lot of characters are unable to be a mirror. I mean, in, in early on, there's something about Jon Snow that's a mirror for Tyrion, although they, yeah. their disadvantages present in different ways. But there is a part of Tyrion that has this self-hatred. Yes. And I think he projects some of that onto Penny. I think that there's part of Tyrion that thinks, as long as I act with nobility people will treat me to a certain extent as a nobleman mm-hmm. um penny doesn't have any of that for recourse right and, she doesn't and that's not even yes, a choice for her it's not even a choice for her and so when he when he encounters her and really is sort of forced into her company yes in a way that makes him uncomfortable he i think the part of himself that he hates he projects onto her. 
Yes, absolutely agree. And doesn't, from his position of privilege in terms of class and money and family name, it's easy for him to look down on her at mm, first, mm. right? To, to say, you're debasing yourself. Or you, I think you're right. Those parts of him that he knows other people see him as are fully exemplified in Penny, mm-hmm. who embraces these, again, not because of any kind of self-hatred, right? Penny does it fully aware that she has to. You know, she is fully perceptive of these these discriminatory narratives that really dictate her role in society. She's fully aware of what that role is. Mm-hmm. And her ability really to conform to that expected role might seem undignified to Tyrion, but a lot it really allows her to really safely navigate this very kind of prejudiced and often violent society because she doesn't really have any other resources. So I think the juxtaposition of those two characters, I was I was sad when Penny didn't make an appearance <laughs> in yeah. the film or in the TV version. Um, it, it's It shows that, again, that kind of complexity. You know, I think you could look at Game of Thrones and be critical of the fact that there's not a lot of intersectionality in a lot of different areas, right? Um, but Penny really shows us another side right. of what it's like to be a dwarf in a society without these other advantages that Tyrion has. Tyrion's not without a point, though. I think that I think he's got. I think he he approaches Penny wrongheadedly. However, there is a part of him that thinks you've chosen to an occupation that has that has not brought not elevated people with disability you know you allow people to you allow people to laugh at you in a way that has hurt me in my life yeah um and of course you know that's <laughs> there's there's a lot more to that but i can kind of see Tyrion's point um at least point of departure i see I understand that that's Tyrion's point of view. I think he's wrong. Um, Simply because an individual, regardless of who you are, you can only make a choice if you have access to a range of meaningful choices, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, And given space and agency to make a choice among those choices. And so, you know, when Tyrion looks at Penny and says, well, you're making a choice to do this is she (laughs) right choice is not here's bad choice a and bad Mm -hmm. choice b decide right choices no you have the full range uh, of choices that anybody in you know Tyrion's position would have for penny to make a choice she needs to have that availability penny doesn't have the kind of choice that Tyrion has and so yes Tyrion's right in the sense that okay it's you know dwarf performers who are playing into these stereotypes that do make it harder for me to navigate my world. I understand his resentment of that, but from Penny's point of view, there is no choice. Yeah. She's, she's a survivor to make a living. She gets coin, right? She has a place to sleep. Um, She is able to have some kind of independence, Mm -hmm. right? By playing into people's perceptions of her, that is her, survival right that is her form absolutely of that is yeah for sure that's her survival now 
of course, by the you know the the other side of the coin is that, um, you know Tyrion, Tyrion made a series of choices that landed him into, you know, this troop with, with Penny. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and then you could you could question, well, did he have to make those choices to land there? Um. I mean, in in some ways, uh, they're in you know they're in the same predicament. He just has fallen further, <laughs> you know. Yeah. He he yeah. he fell from a, a a place of privilege to this situation, and I and he resents it. And I think he yeah. resents her, um, just you know for I- illegitimately. You know, he has no right yeah. to resent her. Yeah. But I totally get why he resents she... her. I do too, but you know the fact that Tyrion is able to even, you know, move around his environment, his world. You know, going back to Cersei, you know, how often it has, mm. you know, Cersei acknowledged that even as a woman, there is not even the mobility afforded to be able to change your location in the way that that men have access right. to. Yeah. So you know, again, I, I think there are so many intersections with Penny. It's not just her disability; it's the fact that she is a woman. It's the fact that she's poor. Yeah. It's the fact that she's uneducated. Right. It, it's such a nice, um, interesting. Co- we see Tyrion in different ways because we have Penny. I think. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And Tyrion, you know, sees himself in different ways. I think because of Penny. Yeah. Um, so she's an interesting character. Um, you know, I, I know that some have looked at Penny and, and have said, "Oh." Here's our stereotypical depiction. And, you know, and yeah, she, but that's the point. (laughs) I think that's the point, you know, showing that, yeah, she is stereotyped, but Penny within that stereotypical depiction of how people see her is making the most of that in the only ways that she can, that are, that are available to her. So I wonder if there's a little bit of, yeah, yeah, that's true. I wonder if there's a little bit of Tywin in his derision of Penny because early on, Early on, Tyrion like has a talent for tumbling, right? Yeah. And then Tywin puts a stop to it. I think the reason why Tyrion likes it is that he can make people laugh with his tumbling. Yeah. And I think that there's part of him that likes that um, element of it. And then, of course, Ty- this is something that Tywin has to stop because, of course, he's a Lannister. Um, yeah. You know, he's not a he's not a tumbler. Lannister, you know, that's that's below the dignity of a Lannister. Um, right. And yet, and so he does. He does put a stop to it. And so Tyrion has sort of been programmed to think that this is below his dignity. Yeah. To make, but you know what's yeah. interesting too, though, about Tyrion is we tend to be most critical, as, as you acknowledge, of the things that remind us of ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Tyrion, it's a form of masquerade, right? It's the idea, again, of of so exaggerating aspects of how people see you to either um, survive or to gain an advantage, right? To disarm your opponent. I will so play into the stereotypes of what you have of me. Um, Either I can make you laugh, which will give me a form of power, as Tyrion does, or, you know, whatever you're attempting to do with that. Think about how often Tyrion does this too, right? There are so many times where, of course, Tyrion stands up to the depictions of him. He pushes back against them. Um, He defies people's expectations of him. But there are other moments where he thinks, okay, that's not going to work in this situation. Now I have to be the dwarf, 
in this situation, I will be the dwarf yeah, I to mean, survive. Yes. He becomes he a curator gonna, of all the best yes. jokes about dwarves. Yes. I'm going to be the licentious, yes. you know, sneaking around trying to get women, look up their skirts, drink wine. I'm going to be every stereotype you have of the dwarf because in this situation, I can use it to my advantage. That's right when he stands up in Lysa's court, right? Uh, in the in the film version, it's even more explicit. He talks about, I am licentious and I'm yeah. dirty and I, you know, I do these things. I'm a terrible person. He plays into everything they already thought about him. And it's beautiful because he's got the court laughing and Bronn stands up to be his champion, right? right. So he does it too. He just doesn't do it in ways that are quite as explicit as Penny, right? That's Penny's just about Penny's only strategy survival. Whereas Tyrion again has choice. Yeah. There are times he can play up his his stereotypical dwarfness. There are times he doesn't have to. Penny doesn't have those resources. Penny pretty much has just the masquerade. And I think Tyrion, you're right, sees that and resents it because it reminds him of how limited, even with his greater sense of choice, Tyrion doesn't have the full range of choice either. I don't remember what happens to Penn. Do is is she still around? She's still around. I think that he and isn't it Tyrion and Penny and Jorah um, are all together at the end. They've been enslaved, they are, right? They're they've been enslaved. Danny uh, releases them from the pits, the marine pits, uh-huh. and they're. I think they're on their way to try to. Aren't they going to join the um, uh, the sons? Um, yeah, maybe that's the case because Danny, Danny is sons. thrown away, right? Yeah, Danny's gone. I think they're going to try to rejoin Danny by joining the Second Sons. It gets a really mm. convoluted there toward the end, mm. um, but I think that's where we leave off with them. That's interesting. I'll have to revisit the last book, but I, I think that's right. Huh. So yeah, Penny's still around. So I'm, I'm curious to see if she'll. Maybe we'll get a Penny point of view chapter, which would be fabulous. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> One can only hope. My thanks to Jan. A note about next week, I will have Linda Antonson on. She'll be covering the next chapter, of course. But we'll also be diving deep into questions about ethnic representation in HBO adaptations. And we take a much different view on these things. And so it's an argument. It's a respectful argument. But I thought I would alert you to that. My feeling is that this kind of podcast is a good place for respectful disagreement. And so I hope you receive that interview in the spirit that it is intended. And that is all for this week.